Shalom, and welcome to another episode of Israel Policy Pod. I'm Margot Nykirk. And I'm Evan Gottesman. And I'm Eli Koaz, and that was a fantastic shalom, Margot. Thanks, Eli. I hope you had a safe trip back. <laughs> Applause all around, both for Margot's shalom and Eli's safe return. To Tel Aviv, the land of eternal, and Israel, the land of eternal elections. Yeah, there's a lot to talk about when it comes to these elections, and there are a lot of elections to talk about. What are we looking at this week? I think we should start off maybe with the Likud primary election, since that's at the forefront, and the election is coming up next week, actually a week from today on December 26th. And then I think we should go into maybe some polls, because I know that Eli is very enthusiastic about polls. I think that this was the big positive news story of the entire year for Eli specifically, that he would be able to do polls again. Yeah, and I think Margot is exactly right, that the big issue that everyone will be focusing on is next week's primary in the Likud, leadership primary, between Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and longtime Likud rival Gidon Saar. This is the biggest challenge Netanyahu has faced in a very long time, and Saar has the support of several prominent MKs from within the Likud, and people are saying that this could be a close race. Now, there is a chance that the Likud will also have a vote for its full Knesset roster, something that the Central Committee has voted to, to cancel, but appeals were made, and there could be a situation where the Likud will have to have a full-on primary to redetermine its list for the next elections, and that would be a big mess, to say the least, in a party that's already facing a lot of internal issues, to say the least. Yeah, and I, I think it's important when we assess this primary election with Likud, whether or not it's something that's going to just be for the number one position or something that's going to go down the whole list. We have to look at what's at stake here. I don't think that this primary election is a question of whether or not Netanyahu is going to win, because even though you mentioned, Eli, people are saying it looks like a close race, I think Netanyahu is pretty strongly favored to win. I think it's a question of what percentage can Gidon Saar poll? Because if he gets a significant amount of the vote, if he can poll a third of the vote or, or 40%, then I think that really demonstrates that, one, he has a future, and two, Netanyahu's hold on the party is deteriorating. And in the past, a challenger internally probably wouldn't be able to present that strong of a showing. And Gidon Saar has actually even gotten, I believe, six Likud MKs to come out for him. So it'll be interesting to see how promising he can make his own future political prospects look. I also think it's important to note uh, that for purposes of our issue at Israel Policy Forum, thinking about Israeli-Palestinian conflict and annexation, which are certainly not at the top of the agenda for Israeli voters, Gidon Saar is actually ideologically to the right of Netanyahu. Now, people are, are putting a lot of weight on his candidacy in the Likud primary just as a way of getting, getting Netanyahu out of the way. But I believe that Saar came out in favor of West Bank annexation long before Netanyahu did, I think back in a couple years ago. Yeah, he, he is on record supporting West Bank annexation. And one um, can point to this either being his core belief or they could also point to it being political posturing within the Likud. I mean, we saw this week he made a visit like where he was actually launching his leadership campaign to Khan al-Akhmar. Do you remember the 
the Bedouin uh, village that was a, that there was an Israeli court decision to remove, I believe, and Netanyahu has not done that yet. So Gidon Sar went there saying, uh, making a speech about how this hasn't been done yet and that this village needs, needs to go. So I think that that is part of it, but definitely on paper, he's more right wing than Benjamin Netanyahu, but more right wing and without uh, all the, the legal uh, shadow behind him is something that a lot of Israelis just think is better and even within the Likud. Now, one thing I'll point to is that in all the polls, which we've, uh, which we'll talk about in a bit, there's an interesting shift of Nassar getting less seats, but doing better for the right-wing bloc. So that's also a consideration that many Likud voters will probably consider when voting for uh, their next leader. You know, Eli, you brought up about the Netanyahu's legal shadow, and I sort of want to tie this primary election to the general election. I sort of have a question for you, too. Don't you think from Kaholavan's stance that they are more interested in keeping Netanyahu in place than rather have new change of leadership because doesn't it serve to their purpose as being the anti-Netanyahu, the other that people like people who are upset with Netanyahu can go to Kaholavan and vote for them? And they have pretty similar policies if you look at what they stand for. But Saar sort of is now presenting himself as the alter- alternatively Kudnik, right? So I guess my question is, isn't it in the interest of Benny Gantz to keep Netanyahu in place so that, like, he can run off of his party language? I think that you're exactly right, Margot. I think that uh, Kahol Lavan has a much more clear raison d'etre for existing as a party if Netanyahu is in charge of Likud because there are a lot of people— I don't want to say a lot, but there, there are several people within Kaholavan who I think would have no problem identifying with the Likud under Gidon Sar's leadership. Their issue is more procedural than it is political. They don't like the idea of a prime minister who's facing indictments, not necessarily positioning themselves as ideologically opposed to a right-wing prime minister who supports annexation or to an individual who's doing, uh, as Eli said, standing in a, a Bedouin village in the West Bank saying that it should be demolished to make way for an expanding settlement. Those aren't the issues that get them. It's a procedural problem, an institutional problem with the idea of having a prime minister who is in legal and, and criminal trouble. I think those are both very important points. And I actually am not sure who the, who Kaholavan prefer, because I think both Netanyahu and Gidon Sar give Kaholavan different advantages. If we look at Netanyahu, there's a clear advantage in that he has this big legal shadow, as Margot mentioned, the indictments, and he's going into this election campaign as an indicted candidate for prime minister. So it's going to be very easy to just double down on what the two previous election campaigns have been about yes or no to Netanyahu, and now Netanyahu has the indictments attached to him. They're not floating in the air. But at the same time, we could get to a solution where both the results are similar, and there we go to fourth elections. Now, with Gidon Sar, despite the fact that the campaign wouldn't be about Netanyahu, there's a good chance, I mean, and all the polls have shown that Kaholavan will win by a greater margin if they are running against Gidon Sar. And obviously, polls can change. But Gidon Sar is not a veteran campaigner like Benjamin Netanyahu. And let's assume that Kaholavan do win significantly more seats. It will be much easier for them to make a government with Likud 
if Gidon Tsar is the leader of the Likud. And that could prevent Israel from fourth elections and from fifth elections. So from that perspective, it may be in Kaholavan's benefit to have Gidon Tsar. But this is definitely an important point, an important topic of conversation, especially as we go into the Likud primary uh, next week. Yeah, one thing that I just want to raise about that is you correctly point out that Gidon Tsar is not projected to bring as many seats to Likud as Netanyahu would if, if Tsar is at the head of the party. But what's different in a lot of those forecasts is that the right-wing bloc as a whole is larger. For example, uh, the union of right-wing parties in a lot of the polls with Netanyahu on top, as is the status quo, the union of right-wing parties is shown as falling below the threshold. But if you take Netanyahu out, there's not as much brand loyalty to Likud. People don't feel as obligated to vote for it. So you have a smaller Likud, but uh, the union of right-wing parties is above the threshold. And overall, the right bloc is slightly larger than it would be under Netanyahu. And as you point out, these are just polls. They're not going to be precisely correct. But I think that the general thinking there and the, the logic behind that is sound so it makes sense that the, the polls would reflect a view that the right bloc could be bigger if Netanyahu is not at the head of Likud. Those are some great points that you guys are making regarding politics on the right, but I sort of want to also look at what's been happening on the left. Merritt's announced today that they're running on their own ticket for the, their own election. Stav Shafir also said that she is going to form her own party known as the Green Movement, especially because Merritt's is looking to promote the Arab vote with MK Asawi Faraj on their list. We know that the Arab vote played a significant percentage in the Merritt's party in the April election and that they played a significant role in the past September election. So I guess I'm also asking what's going to happen with these smaller left-wing parties. We now know that Merritt's, the Green Movement, the Israel Democratic Party are not going to run on the same ticket. And the threshold to pass Knesset is 3.25% of the vote, which is four Knesset seats. What is this going to do in terms of the mathematics behind a strong left-wing bloc? So the end of the Democratic Union, which is one of the shortest-lived Israeli political parties, I think, in recent history, is something, I mean, I don't really know what to think about it yet, because this was supposed to be the union that would finally unite the Israeli left and create a formidable a party that gets over 10 seats with real impact. And problems started by the fact that labor, who are supposed to be really the glue of this uh, union, decided to go with Gesher in an attempt to bring voters uh, from the right. So the union came together with Ehud Barak's party in last election and with Stav Shafir. And we saw that it really didn't make a big difference. I mean, they finished with five seats, which was, I believe... Merritt's finished with four seats back in April. So a really small change. We saw that Ehud Barak didn't really have a real impact here. And uh, Merritt's said to themselves, what do we need uh, this for? And if we're going to keep on to this merger, why do we need to have Stav Shafir as our number two when most of the voters anyways are, are Merritt's voters? So that that created this really like nasty split that really all only became especially public today with Stav Shafir announcing that she is going to run with her own party. And this creates a lot of issues 
for the Israeli left, also for Kachol Avan, who need to have these parties in the Knesset as their allies if they're in search of forming a government. And so we have Labor, which have been one or two seats above the threshold. And now we have Merits and Staff Shafir's party, and I haven't seen any, there haven't been any parties done yet with Staff Shafir's Green Movement party. But I don't suspect that we'll see them over the threshold. At least, uh, it would be very surprising. So we have a lot of lost votes on the left at this moment. And we'll have to see if these parties can find a way to somehow unite in order to save uh, those votes. Right. And even if the Green Movement were able to rise above the threshold, it's worth reminding our listeners that in, in a parliamentary system like Israel's, in, in the proportional representation vote, there's this concept of lost ballots or lost votes that the Green Movement could make it into the Knesset with four seats. And again, as you've laid out, Eli, that's probably not realistic, but say they did just for the sake of argument. They, they could get four and a quarter seats worth of votes, but there's no such thing as a quarter seat in the Knesset. So they only get the four seats and then the other votes there are just lost to the wind unless they sign a surplus vote agreement with another party. But that's not a, that's not a, a foregone conclusion. Uh, that won't necessarily happen. And if there are acrimonious relations between these left-wing parties and they're not all on the same page and, and the different personalities don't like each other, then I don't know that that's necessarily a safe assumption. So, yeah, I think, I think it's very harmful for the prospects of a, a strong left-wing showing or as strong as you can get within uh, Israeli political life today. Because as we know, uh, the left in Israel has been pretty marginalized in the past 25 years, but nothing is set in stone also. I mean, the, the deadline to register party slates is still a ways away, so all the mergers that could happen are far from formalized or set at this point. So as we're talking about mergers, I think we should move on to Eli's favorite subject regarding the elections, which is the polls, Right. Rock on. Yeah. Eli, you want to talk to us about polls? Can I take it away? Okay. Well, the polls. Now, before I start with the polls, I want to remind our listeners that our fabulous 120 project is coming back for a third edition beginning the beginning of next year. January 6th is the official launch date. There we'll have a whole bunch of polls, data visualizations, all sorts of cool resources that you can follow uh, with our 120 polling average that will be updated every day. So look forward for that. So let's just talk about the latest poll that we have, because, you know, we're very early on in the uh, election season. We're not getting polls every day, but, but we have an idea of what things are looking like. So let's look at Khan, uh, the Israel Broadcasting Authority. Let's look at their poll, which was conducted by Kantar on December 15th. So here we have a situation where, again, a difference that we talked about earlier, we have a difference since we don't have a Likud leader yet. Uh, there's two scenarios here, one in which uh, Netanyahu is leading the Likud and the other is where uh, Gidon Tsar is leading the Likud. So let's take Netanyahu. And so we have blue and white at 35 seats. That's an increase of two from what they currently have. We have the Likud at 31 seats, which is a loss of one. And then we have the joint list at 13 Shas at 9, Israel Beitenu at 8, UTJ, United Torah Judaism at 7, Labor, uh, Gesher, 
at six, Hayamina uh, Hadash, led by Naftali Bennett, with six, and uh, the Democratic Union, which is no more, merits at five. But don't count that as merits because that poll was done while the Democratic Union was still, it was still unknown what would happen with them. And then under the threshold, Evan mentioned earlier, we have the United Right list and obviously Otsma Yehudit. So looking here, we have a situation where this Gantz block, which is center left Arab block, are at 59, which is up from 57. And the right wing religious block down to 53 with a Vigdor Lieberman with eight. So we have a situation where there still is really a, like a stalemate. If these were the results, there, there would still be a stalemate in terms of forming a coalition unless a Vigdor Lieberman were to pick a side, which could turn the tides either way. Now, if we look at Gidon Saar uh, leading the Likud, I'll just go over those numbers quickly. A blue and white at 34, Likud at 27, the joint list at 13, then you have Shas at 10, Hayamina Hadash at 8, it's a significant increase, Yisrael Beitenu at 7, UTJ at 7, Labor at 5, Democratic Union at 5, and here the United Right list, as Evan mentioned earlier, is above the threshold with four seats. So that's a situation where, again, you have a, a slightly bigger center-left block with 57, the right religious block at 56, and those seven seats of Israel Betenu pushing for unity government. But here there are a lot more of options in terms of a coalition. Unity government seems really easy to put together with Gidon Tsar and Blue and White and Lieberman, or even a right-wing government if uh, Lieberman decides to join up with Gidon Tsar. So there's a lot of interesting situations. That's something to follow very closely and also to see what, what happens now that, that the Democratic Union is no more, to see how that affects merits in the polls, how many votes Stav Shafir's Green Party takes away from merits and labor. That's what to focus on. It's any, any special thoughts? Sorry, I just overwhelmed you both with numbers. So I'm, I'd like to apologize to our listeners as well. I do not expect... I mean, I know polls involve numbers, obviously, but a lot of numbers. <laughs> no, I think we just have, I think we have a lot to look forward to in terms of the polls, in terms of who gets predicted above the threshold. The only thing I would add is that we're again, it's going to, this is going to be an election between the two largest parties. And so it's happened in last election where, where at the end, the votes have just flocked to the, to the large parties. But so it's also careful to look important. I mean, to look at the, the smaller parties. And that electoral threshold, which could be pivotal. But the real race here is obviously between blue and white, Benny Gantz, and uh, the Likud, either Benjamin Netanyahu or, or, or Gidon Sar. I think it's correct that this is mainly a contest between the two largest parties. And I also think that you're right to read the polls as generally reflecting the same results as the last Israeli election in September. I don't want to play fast and loose with Israeli taxpayers' money or the negative consequences that would come with a fourth election or even a fifth election. But even if the results of March's election are inconclusive again, I think that each repeat round will steadily erode Netanyahu's credibility within his own party. If you look at what's happening right now with Gidon Saar and some of the people who have come out in support of him. For example, 
uh, Chaim Katz, who is not an insignificant figure, uh, who's formerly the head of Israeli aerospace industries, a major defense contractor in Israel, and several other Likud MKs have come out in support of Gidon Sar. I don't think that would have been conceivable even after the April election. If you look at the way that Likud and the rest of the right-wing bloc lined up in support of Netanyahu when the coalition talks failed and when Netanyahu couldn't pull together a coalition that would support him under indictment, the right-wing bloc all fell in line and Likud all fell in line. So if Netanyahu isn't able to form a coalition after the March election, fine. But I think each time he has to go back, it starts to chip away at his case that he should retain the premiership. And what happens after that, whether it's Gidon Sar, uh, whether it's Kaholavan, and what that means also for our main focus at Israel Policy Forum for annexation, I think is is up in the air. But for now, the, the central question is going to be how long does Netanyahu have? I think that's a great question, but I think we're just going to have to wait and see how Israeli politics unfolds in the next coming weeks. So stay tuned to follow us drive through this crazy ride. So thank you to our loyal listeners for your generous, consistent support. And for our uh, disloyal listeners, uh, please become loyal listeners uh, very soon. We would appreciate that greatly. That would be greatly appreciated. And if you are one of those disloyal listeners that Eli and Margo were talking about, or if you're a loyal listener who wants to reaffirm your loyalty to Israel Policy Pod, then you can do that very easily. First of all, you can continue tuning in. Second of all, you can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, a rating, send the podcast to a friend. I want to add a positive review, please. I mean, you can leave negative reviews. That's your right, but we would prefer positive reviews. All of that helps to keep Israel Policy Pod at the top of the list of Israeli politics and policy-related podcasts, and it helps us continue to bring you consistently good content like what we've been talking about today. So we really appreciate your listenership and your support. Yes, and we have lots of exciting new updates coming in the next couple of months. As you heard earlier on in the podcast, we're reviving our 120 project version 3.0. We're going to be providing lots of podcasts with high profile people who are going to join as guests to talk about the different parties that are in place, political developments. So stay tuned for that. Our big launch is January 6th. And we also have other exciting updates. Again, January 6th for the relaunch of the 120 Project. I know that all of you are going to be waiting with bated breath at 11.59 p.m. on January 5th for the 120 Project to launch. And when it does, you will be able to find it at www.israelpolicyforum.org forward slash elections three. That's number three. And also later in the month, if you are a listener on the West Coast in Los Angeles, or if you're just really committed and you live somewhere else and you want to travel to Los Angeles, we will be doing a live recording of Israel Policy Pod at the Z3 conference, which is taking place beginning on January 26th. So we hope to see some of our listeners there, and we will catch you next time. Yalla bye.